Welcome to the Talking Immigration Podcast. Immigration is a complex issue. Most of us have strong emotions, but don't actually know the details of how immigration actually works. In this podcast, I interview immigration experts to teach us about the types of immigration, limits, costs, enforcement, and more. I'm Katarina, your host. Let's talk immigration. Today we are talking all about immigration detention with Lawrence Benenson, the Interim Vice President of Policy and Advocacy for the National Immigration Forum. Thanks for being with us, Larry. Thanks for having me. Sure. Well, let's start with an obvious question. What exactly is detention as it pertains to immigrants? And more specifically, what is the intended legal purpose of detention? So the United States maintains a a system of detention facilities that are designed to hold individuals who are awaiting deportation or or who are otherwise suspected of of immigration violations, things like visa violations to legal entry or other civil immigration violations. Um, And and the word civil is important here because immigration detention is distinct from, from criminal detention, which is what most of us think of when we talk about detention. Um, immigration detention is not intended to be punitive. It, it's a way to address a, a civil offense, which is what immigration offenses are. Um, now, civil immigration detention is aimed at ensuring that people show up to their removal proceeding hearings, that if they have a, a date scheduled in immigration court, um, it's a way to assure that they're, they're going to show up. And it also helps ensure that people who go through those proceedings and are ordered removed, that they, um, they proceed to removal. So it's a way to ensure people are complying with um, immigration court rulings, which, which in many cases can lead to removal or, or deportation. Can you give us some context? Have we been using detention centers for a long time? Or like, do you know when we first started doing this? Yeah, so, so we have been using immigration detention to some extent for a very long time. There actually were uh, uh, immigration detention facilities at Ellis Island. So we, we're going back to the 19th century, late 19th century. Um, there, there was something uh, that resembled immigration detention. You know, that said, the widespread use of immigration detention only goes back a couple decades. Um, going back 40 years, say to 1979 or so, um, the immigration detention system has grown about 20-fold. So we're detaining many, many more migrants than we were just a few short decades ago. And, and really, even going back around, um, you know, 25 years or so, we've seen an explosion in immigration detention. Uh, the federal government only held a few thousand people in detention on a particular day um, up to the mid-90s. And, and what happened to change that was in 1996, you had two laws passed around the same time. This is during the, the Clinton administration. Uh, the 1996 Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act and the 1996 Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. Now, those two laws had the combined uh, impact of, of increasing the number of immigrants who were subject to federal immigration detention. And really, almost overnight, we saw a dramatic spike. Um, In 1996, before the passage of those laws, there were around 8,500 people in immigration detention uh, on a particular day. Uh, By 1998, it had almost doubled to 16,000. And since then, we've seen the number, you know, the the increase we've seen continue. Another key point I just want to mention was, uh, beginning in 2009, Congress in the appropriations process mandated that that ICE, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, maintain a a minimum number of detention beds for for immigrants. 
So unlike our criminal detention system, where, where detention levels are set by the number of people committing crimes who are sentenced, um, the immigration detention levels uh, in many ways are set by Congress. And this daily requirement, which some people call the, the detention bed quota, was around 33,000, 34,000 up until the end of the Obama administration. Uh, that number rose dramatically throughout the Trump administration. And on the eve of the pandemic, um, over 52,000 were held in, in immigration detention uh, on a particular day. And, and when I say someone's held in immigration detention on a particular day, um, people cycle in and, out immigra- uh, in and out of immigration detention. So if the average daily detained population is 50,000, over the course of the year, we're talking hundreds and thousands of people passing through the system and, and who are detained for uh, you know, days, weeks, or sometimes even months or years. Okay, so generally, a current average could be around 50,000 on any given day. So on the eve of the pandemic, the number got up to 52,000. Um, and, and once the pandemic hit, we did see a reduction. Um, uh, you know, during the, the Trump administration, uh, it took a little bit of time, but eventually ICE did end up uh, reducing the number of people in immigration detention. And, and currently, um, there are a little more than 14,000 people in immigration detention. Uh, and th- this allows for better social distancing. Uh, it allows for um, you know, safer conditions in general, both for those who are detained, as well as um, you know, people who work at those immigration detention facilities. So We've seen a dramatic decrease um, since the onset of the pandemic, starting in the Trump administration and continuing into the Biden administration. Um, but after the pandemic, there's no assurance that th- that number is going to stay at those at those levels. It's very likely to spike back up towards the 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 level. Sure. And you mentioned early on that generally people in detention can be there for any number of immigration violations, being here without documents or overstaying a visa. I would have maybe assumed prior to learning a little bit more about detention that it would just be specifically for people who posed a threat. Was that part of any of those policy changes in Congress? Like the reason more were subject to detention, did that have to do with the purpose for being in detention? So so in general, immigration detention is aimed at, at addressing the issue of getting people to their immigration court proceedings and ensuring that if someone's ordered removed, that they're they're removed in a timely manner, that they're not going to they're not going to flee. Um, now, over time, Congress has made reforms which have um, wh- which have attempted to also address the public safety component of this. Um, again, this is civil immigration detention is different than criminal detention, so. Uh, it's not quite uh, an apples-to-apples comparison. But Congress, beginning in the late 80s, uh, established something called mandatory detention, uh, in which um, they said for certain categories of serious offenders, uh, people who are non-citizens must be held in immigration detention up until their deportation. Um, In 1988, when, when Congress first first created this category. It was just a handful of offenses, very serious violent offenses, very serious high-level drug offenses like drug trafficking. Um, But over time, Congress has expanded those categories significantly. Um, And the two laws I mentioned earlier, the 1996 Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act and the 1996 Legal Immigration and Immigrant Responsibility Act, dramatically expanded the relevant categories. 
So we now have a situation where, uh, you know, upwards of two thirds of people held in immigration detention are, are subject to mandatory detention. Uh, so basically they're detained automatically. Uh, there's not an individualized assessment as to whether they pose a danger to society. Um, and, and these these people who qualify for mandatory detention qualify because um, they've either, either committed what, what's called an aggravated felony or what's called a crime of moral turpitude. Um, now, those sound like very serious uh, categories of offenses, and in many cases they are, um, but because Congress has expanded the definition, it also includes offenses that, that you might not think of as being an extreme danger to public safety. For instance, um, gambling offenses um, can, can qualify as an aggravated felony or crime of moral turpitude. Or uh, counterfeiting. Yeah, so you have these, these offenses, which, which are you know, significant offenses, which can rightfully carry um, negative immigration consequences, but they're getting lumped in with people who've committed uh, you know, murder or sexual assault. So the category has been expanded beyond um, where it was originally, and, and that has repercussions for our immigration detention system. In a previous episode, we'd, we've heard that ICE has the authority to release people who they deem don't, maybe don't fit this category or who should be let out with some type of custody. Is there written guidance for who should be released versus, I mean, there's this mandatory category, but everyone else, how do they determine who should stay in and who should be released? So, so as you mentioned, ICE has some discretion um, to determine whether they want to detain somebody, whether they're comfortable just releasing somebody uh, who is picked up for an immigration offense uh, if they're not subject to mandatory detention. Similarly, immigration judges in our immigration court system also have some discretion uh, for those who are not subject to mandatory detention. Um, but those who are detained, uh, again, it's not because it's distinct from criminal detention, there, there's not a, a set criminal sentence. So somebody can be, um, is basically held as they move through proceedings. Um, now, now ICE has, since the onset of the pandemic, used its discretion uh, to help reduce the detained population, which is, which is definitely um, a positive given the threats of holding somebody uh, during uh, COVID-19. But it also, um, it also kind of highlights that, that prior to COVID, uh, ICE w- was not uh, using that discretion uh, in some cases where it probably could have. So, okay. so there is discretion both at the uh, agency level at ICE as well as the uh, the level of immigration courts and immigration judges uh, to have people released. Uh, there also is for a number of people they they can be eligible for immigration bond. Um, so an immigration judge can set a bond, and um, if people pay the bond, they can get out. Um, now, there, there's also an issue of whether those bonds are being set at realistic levels. Um, there, there have been times when immigration judges have been setting immigration bonds at, at levels such that it's very difficult for uh, migrants to meet those, those uh, to, to pay those bonds, uh, which, which can uh, you know, lead them just to be detained uh, as they await proceedings, even in, in cases where somebody is not a threat to public safety. Gotcha. You mentioned you could be in detention for any kind of random amount of time. Is there any sort of average amount of time that people stand, spend in detention? And who decides that is that sort of dependent on court cases moving? Or how do we determine how long people are in detention? 
So typically, if someone is detained, they're on what's called the detained docket in their immigration court proceedings. And they're basically, in most cases, detained throughout the time their cases are pending in immigration court. People who are not detained are on something called an, a non-detained docket. And those cases can take years and years, upwards of three to four, sometimes even five years. The detained docket does move quicker. So, so people can see resolution uh, in, in six months, up to sometimes two years. And in many cases, people can be detained the entirety of that time as they're waiting for their immigration cases to proceed. But again, because that we're not talking a criminal sentence, um, there's not a set time. There's not um, you know, a, a three-year sentence for uh, an unlawful entry or a, or a two-year sentence for overstaying a visa. It, it doesn't correspond to the immigration offense. Um, it just corresponds to how long your immigration proceedings are taking. Um, there are some limits on immigration detention. In, in 2001, uh, the Supreme Court, in a case called uh, Zavidas v. Davis, uh, held, using uh, its reading of, of the relevant statute, held that um, immigrants can't be held indefinitely. Um, there, were, there were many cases where somebody, say, was subject to mandatory detention, but couldn't be removed from the U.S. For instance, if somebody at the time was from Cuba or from North Korea, a country where the U.S. didn't have, uh, didn't have official relations, those countries were not uh, accepting people that the U.S. was deporting. So somebody was, was stuck in a, a situation where they'd be potentially detained forever. Um, Supreme Court came in, alluded to the constitutional problem of holding somebody in detention forever, but said, um, we're going to interpret the statute to say you can't hold somebody forever. Um, and that sets some very clear limits on how long someone can be detained. Someone in that situation at a certain point is subject to release. I think usually around six months or so. Um, a subsequent case in 2018, Jennings versus Rodriguez, however, seemed to scale that back somewhat. Again, not ruling on the constitutionality of holding someone indefinitely. The, the Supreme Court in Jennings held that the INA, the, the Immigration Nationality Act, doesn't necessarily grant an immigrant detainees a bond hearing. And without a bond hearing, uh, it's very difficult for an immigrant detainee to challenge the, their ongoing detention. Um, again, the, the court has not ruled about the constitutional issue, whether, say, there's a Fifth Amendment violation holding somebody for extended periods of time. But there are at least some limits w which have been scaled back somewhat by that recent decision to how long someone can be held in detention. So again, not a set time frame, uh, not indefinite apparently, but um, you can uh, serve pretty long periods of time in immigration detention as you await your hearings currently. What about children? Are I think we've heard a little bit about, I mean, we've heard a lot more about children recently, but what are the limits for children being in detention? Y yeah, so, so fortunately there are, there are pretty clear limits on how long children can be held in immigration detention. And, and those parameters are set out by uh, what, what's called uh, the 1997 Flores Settlement Agreement. Uh, this is a settlement agreement that the federal government during the Clinton administration entered into uh, with some plaintiffs. Uh, it was in response to a class action that was filed back in the 80s uh, that challenged the federal government's treatment and detention of immigrant children. Now, under this settlement agreement, um, there are standards set for the treatment and conditions of children held in immigration detention. But, but relevant to this, it, that agreement also sets limits for how long children can be held in detention. Uh, within the last few years, in 2016, there was a federal court case clarifying which children were covered under this agreement. So it had for some time been, inter been interpreted to cover 
unaccompanied children, children who come by themselves to the border and are taken in by immigration authorities and eventually handed over to the, uh, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, ORR, which is a subdivision of, of uh, Health and Human Services. Um, the 2016 um, ruling on the settlement agreement, which, which is continuously monitored by the federal courts, held that not only those kids were covered, but also kids who came over with their families. And back in 2016, the Obama administration had made use of something called family detention, in which mothers and children coming to the border together were held in immigration detention, often for extended periods. So this, this settlement agreement um, has now been clarified to uh, attach to those children as well and place severe, significant limits on how long those kids can be detained. And the current limit is about 20 days. Really, after 20 days, the federal government is obligated to release children, including those who come across with their parents. Um, there have been instances where that 20-day rule has been violated, but um, in general, from the Obama administration, late Obama administration, through the Trump administration to the Biden administration, federal government has been very careful to adhere to that. Um, and in most circumstances, has in fact released those children after 20 days. So what's that 72-hour limit that I've been hearing about? Yes. So the detention I've been talking about is generally um, been ICE detention, uh, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which which is responsible for maintaining medium to long-term immigration detention facilities. Um, there are also, when people first come into the U.S., they initially encounter um, Border Patrol or agents and officers of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, uh, which is a separate agency within DHS. So when somebody is picked up by CBP, say by the Border Patrol um, or, or another CBP agent or a customs officer at a port of entry, they may be transferred temporarily into CBP custody and into CBP holding centers. Um, those holding centers are not long-term detention facilities. In some cases, we're talking a, um, you know, a cement bench, uh, maybe a restroom. They're short-term holding areas. Uh, and that's where a situation has arisen because of the increase in unaccompanied children coming across the border. Those who temporarily are placed in CBP facilities, uh, it's ended up taking some time to transfer them into ORR custody, where where they eventually end up being taken. And ORR custody, I should clarify, is a little distinct from immigration detention. It, it's really custodial care. It's ORR for children, um, Office of Refugee Resettlement facilities are, are, are different than detention facilities. But in the meantime, while they're waiting for that placement, um, children can be kept and have been kept longer than three days, longer than 72 hours. And that's really problematic um, because, again, those facilities, they're certainly not designed for children. They're certainly not designed for long-term custody. And I know it's an ongoing situation that the Biden administration is attempting to address, opening new influx facilities, generating additional capacity to, to care for those unaccompanied children in order to relieve the stress on um, uh, you know, a CBP uh short-term facility. But yes, there have been reports kids have been held five days, seven days in those facilities. Um, and it's very troubling even without the ongoing COVID-19 situation. But in those facilities, which can get crowded, it, it's even more troubling. Um, so that's been an ongoing challenge by the Biden administration and also a challenge that had been previously faced by the Trump administration, most notably in 2019 when there was a previous influx. Well, that makes a lot of sense, just understanding that there are two different types of intake centers, those supposed to be short-term temporary ones before being transferred to more long-term facilities. That makes 
that clarifies a lot. Can you talk with us a little bit about what detention is like generally? So, you know, more those long-term detention or is it like jail or are they like big centers? What are, what is it like on the inside? And then maybe you mentioned, you know, they're a little bit different for children. Can you talk about what they would be like for children and families? Sure. So, so the answer to that is it depends because there's such a wide variety of immigration detention facilities. Um, there are some facilities which are built by the federal government, run by ICE, uh, and those are um, th- those are generally larger facilities. Um, but ICE also houses people in facilities run by uh, private companies, basically private prison companies, who build facilities and they enter into contracts with the federal government to house people. Um, ICE also sometimes puts immigrant detainees uh, into local jails. Uh, ICE will enter into a contract with a local government or a local jail itself uh, and say, 20% of your jail is going to go to um, immigration detention. We'll pay you X dollars per person per night um, for that. And the jail will house 80% of its population will be people who are criminal offenders. And the remaining 20% will basically be an immigration wing. And, and clearly those facilities are not only jail-like, they're literally jails. Um, th- there's a variety of, of conditions on the ground in these various facilities uh, the federal government does set standards, and, and there's a few different sets of standards that are um, applied to different types of facilities. But the private facilities, as well as the facilities run by, say, a local government, like a local jail, uh, sometimes have lower standards than the federal standards. And this is because when a contract is entered into, uh, ICE will, will usually put a provision in saying the current standards are what apply in this facility, these current standards in terms of um, you know, living conditions and um, health and safety. Now, if ICE, say, three, four years later, upgrades those standards and issues new standards, which is something which has happened periodically, um, the contract needs to be revised to, to make those, um, those contractual facilities upgrade their standards. So uh, they don't always fully keep up. Uh, so you could have you know, I think in 2014, 2015, the Obama administration issued some updated guidelines, and those didn't initially kick in for a lot of the facilities that, that ICE had con- contracted for. Now, as those contracts come up for renewal, one of the things the federal government does is they push to get those additional protections in. But um, the standards are, um, you know, they provide a minimum baseline, um, but I know uh, advocates and critics have said that they, they don't do enough, that they could be better. In terms of, I think you asked about what family detention facilities look like. Um, there's only three fam- three facilities currently that the federal government, or within the last year or so, has been operated uh, as family detention facilities. Those are just facilities in Carn uh, City, Texas, in Dilly, Texas, and a small facility in uh, Berks, Pennsylvania. Um, those facilities are designed, they're specifically designed for family detention, and they involve the detention of of women of mothers with their children. Um, unlike other facilities, they do have additional um, resources uh, aimed at aimed at children. They have uh, education areas where kids can get um, you know, schooling. They have a recreation space for kids, um, special sleep quarters that are designed, um, but it still is a detention facility. You know, it's not a resort, it's not a, it's not a college campus. Um, but they are they do have generally elevated conditions and they're also um you know do have additional costs to the federal government to reflect that and only 3 of them 
Is that enough? So there are three um, family detention facilities. Uh, Within the last few weeks, the Biden administration actually announced they're going to move away from the family detention model, that they're going to turn those facilities into rapid intake centers. So they'll, they'll process families, aim to hold them no longer than 72 hours, and release those families together Um, sometimes using alternatives to detention, which is a way to monitor people and help get them to their proceedings without detaining them, uh, and also giving them guidance as as to when their immigration court hearings are. So um, they have a court date set. Um, And and you you asked if if that's enough. Um, So family detention itself was already problematic when um, it was used widely, particularly during the Obama administration and into the Trump administration. But the the 2016, uh, and and was something which looked like it could be expanded further just based on the increased numbers of families coming to the border. That 2016 ruling in the Flores settlement uh, that I referenced earlier, the ruling that children who come to the US with their families really limited how much the federal government could use family detention as a a tool um, to, to hold you know, family units, okay. um, because families have to be, kids have to be released within 20 days, the families have to re- be released within 20 days too. So um, at that point, there was there was less of a need for additional family capacity. And, and it was a positive step in that it got the federal government to look towards alternatives, to look for, towards alternatives to detention, to release families, uh, whether on an ankle bracelet or, or um, using case management in which Families provided um, basically a check-in with someone, uh, with with basically a counselor who can give them, uh, advise them on when to go to their hearings and can check in on the family's living conditions. And and those those, um, types of programs, those alternatives to detention, have have proved to be really useful and really um, successful in getting people to immigration hearings, particularly for families, but also for individuals who, who can be subject to alternatives to detention. And you mentioned these family facilities, it's just for the mother and children. So in detention generally, are women and men separated? And what happens if a child comes with their father? Are they separated? Yeah. So when family detention's used, and family detention, I should say, there were at, there's a maximum of, of 3,000 beds in family detention facilities. So many families who come to the U.S. are simply put on an alternative to detention, released, and given their court date, their immigration court date. Um, those who are in detention, it is for, for women. It has been traditionally for women and children. Um, the new rapid intake model used by the Biden administration, I think, is going to also, uh, I'm not certain about this, but I believe it is going to also include husbands or, or fathers when, when men come with their families. But in general, uh, those facilities are for women and children, and men were sent to different immigration detention facilities. Um, family separation, which, which um, was, was experienced, um, you know, was a Trump administration policy, essentially, as part of their zero tolerance effort to charge parents and family units to charge parents criminally, in addition to charging them civilly, um, resulted in, in, you know, putting parents in, in criminal detention. Uh, which which basically made the, the child unaccompanied. And, and that was a really problematic policy, uh, as we all know and all experienced, uh, as we you know saw the debate over that policy back in 2018 during the Trump administration. Can you talk a little bit about when someone is put in detention? 
what happens then? Do they have any rights while they're in detention? Or once they're there, what are those potential outcomes? So, so immigrants do have rights, although I'd say they're, they're distinct from the rights we'd think of if, say, someone were a criminal defendant. Um, for example, immigrants do have the right to hire an attorney. So someone in immigration detention can go out and you know, hire their own attorney, um, but they have to pay for their attorney. So the federal government is not obligated to provide a public defender. They're not obligated to reimburse the cost of, of getting an attorney. And in many cases, um, in most cases, immigrants in detention go unrepresented. Um, and, and even if somebody in immigration detention can afford an attorney, uh, which in many cases they cannot, it's very logistically challenging to, to get one. Um, you know, there's the cost issue, but also the availability of phone access is very limited for someone in immigration detention. Um, there's the fact that many of these facilities are located far from urban centers where immigration attorneys tend to be located, making it difficult to, to find representation in the area. Um, so that's a, that's a big problem, the representation problem. Um, immigrants who are detained generally do have access to immigration courts. Um, they eventually will get their hearing. Uh, they can get their day in court before an, an immigration judge. But even in the last few years, that's been curtailed somewhat. We've seen uh, the Trump administration uh, expanded the use of what's called expedited removal, which is a, a fast track procedure to you know, remove somebody uh, with limited due process before getting into immigration court. Now, those people are, are removed before being put into ICE custody in general, um, but, but there presumably are people who had valid, you know, valid claims to asylum or other protection who might not have gotten that protection. And, and again, as I mentioned the, the, uh, earlier, uh, those, those with mandatory detention have limited ability to seek release, and, and particularly even those who, who are eligible for bond may have uh, a limited ability to seek bond, to seek immigration bond. So there are real limits on rights for those in detention. And then, so basically, once you're in detention, you will either have a date in court, in which case you could qualify for some type of relief where you get to stay, or you will likely be ordered to be deported. Yes. In most circumstances, you're either granted relief or you're ordered removed. Sometimes um, people are released prior to their removal, and they can make arrangements to um, voluntarily leave or they're ordered to remove on a particular date. You had mentioned earlier one of the issues is where the facilities are located. Can you kind of give us a sense of how many detention centers are there in the United States? Like, are, is there one per state, for example? Or it sounded like from what we talked about before, they can be all sorts of different sizes, some just being portions of jails. But can you give us a sense of how many there are and where they are? So, so as of this week, the ICE website lists 134 facilities within its network, and those are spread across 29 states. Um, that number fluctuates. As of a few weeks ago, I think the number was 131. It's just a matter of who ICE has contracted with to hold uh, immigrant detainees. Um, but it's a wide network. It's different types of facilities. And they're spread throughout the country. But, but again, it, it's not in every single state. So they contract with other facilities. So ICE is in charge of overseeing them, but they could potentially be run by. So a not necessarily. Company. ICE contracts, so they pay for the facility. So ICE runs its own facilities. Um, I believe there are some contracts where ICE, ICE will in the contract they'll provide personnel to run the facility. But most cases, if they're contracting with a say a private prison company, or they're contracting with you know local government for for space in a, a local jail facility. They are not actually running the facility. The, um, the company itself, if it's a private entity, 
hires employees to to run the facility. Uh, you know, local jails, they have their own personnel. It's usually a sheriff's department, sheriff's office, which is going to be running the facility. Um, and again, under the contract, there are guidelines that ICE sets. But but ICE itself is not running uh, those types of facilities. So some facilities ICE, are ICE run, others are not. Interesting. And also, I just find it so interesting that even though detention generally is not supposed to be punitive, it can be run by, I mean, arguably punitive organizations like a prison facility. Yeah, you could have a, an arrangement in a jail, a county jail, which will reserve you know, 10, 20 percent of its space for immigration detainees while holding criminal offenders in the rest of the facility. Definitely. What kind of oversight is there of these facilities? Who is in charge of that oversight if there, if there are grievances about conditions or how things are run? Who's, who's the head person in charge? So, so ICE does have an Office of Detention Oversight, which conducts inspections, but um, not surprisingly, it's underfunded and has limited capacity. So as of the last few years, it was just inspecting about 30 facilities per year. Uh, and again, ICE is running you know, upwards of 130 facilities. Um, there's been an a, a investigation into how those inspections work. Um, the, the Department of Homeland Security Office of Inspector General looked at how the Office of Detention Oversight was doing these inspections and concluded that the inspections were relatively infrequent. Uh, they made it difficult for the Office of Detention Oversight to ensure that the facilities are addressing all deficiencies. Uh, and basically found that the level of oversight was not adequate. Um, and critics have argued that, you know, this oversight just isn't, isn't enough. The, uh, the guidelines, which I referenced before, um, in many cases aren't seen as binding. Um, there's little recourse if a facility isn't meeting standards. There, there's a requirement that if a facility fails to inspections that it be closed, but that hasn't happened in over a decade. Uh, despite a number of reports of, uh, you know, even inhumane and degrading treatment in some facilities. So that the process doesn't seem to be working as well as it could, to say the least. Um, now, there's additional oversight, too, on top of the Office of Detention Oversight. Congress, of course, um, has the ability to, con to conduct oversight, and they have in recent years held hearings on conditions in detention facilities, specifically relating to families. Um, Department of Homeland Security has uh, the Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, as well as the Office of Inspector General. And, and they do provide a measure of oversight, including taking complaints from the public and from those detained. Um, somebody can, you can, as a member of the public or as a detained person, file a complaint with the Office of Inspector General, the Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. Now, it can be complicated to do so, but they are set up to take those types of, take those types of complaints. Um, so there is a degree of oversight presented there, but, but clearly the federal government can do better and monitoring the conditions in these facilities. And would you just give us an idea of how much it costs to run these detention facilities? How does it compare to the cost of jails? You know, just kind of wondering if, how expensive it is to detain people. So, so the cost of immigration detention in an ICE facility has been at around $200 per person per day over the last several years. Um, the number actually dropped a little bit before the pandemic because the Trump administration had ramped up detention so much had gotten the number from around 34,000 to 52,000. Um, the number actually fell a little bit. It went down to $173 per person per day as they crammed more people into the same number of facilities, um, kind of what economists call the economies of scale, um, which, which was the first drop in that average in a number of years. Um, since the pandemic, we've seen the cost spike up, not surprisingly. 
as the uh, detention levels have fallen somewhat. Uh, over the course of the second half of fiscal year 2020, the number went to about $325 per person per day, um, which makes sense because of the additional protections needed to avoid COVID spread in those facilities, including uh, lower detention levels. You had a facility which might hold 500 people was holding 150 people. Um, but we're talking roughly $200 per person per day, more in family detention facilities. Those were over $300 per person per day and sometimes higher. And again, with COVID, you know, we had the spike in, in, in cost per person per day. Um, in comparing to, uh, you know, criminal detention, the number I've seen is, at least for those in federal criminal detention, it's about $100 per person per day. It seems to be less, although I understand there are variances if you're talking about um, people held in, in state and local facilities. So at least if you're comparing federal to federal, it seems to be more per person per day in immigration custody, um, but significant costs on both ends, both the, the civil immigration side as well as the federal side in terms of what the taxpayer is is putting out towards um, detaining people. Sure. And to close up, you had mentioned some of those alternatives to detention. So there are alternatives that have proven to work. And we did listen in a past episode that many of the immigrants who are released from detention do show up to their court dates. But can you just kind of briefly review some of those options, alternatives to detention? Sure. So there, there's there's a, many different approaches to alternatives of detention that, that that are used by ICE. There are things including uh, electronic monitoring, something like an ankle bracelet, um, the case management model, which is something I alluded to before, um, which has been particularly effective in terms of families, basically assigning a case manager, um, someone who serves like a counselor to the family to check in with them, keep them aware of their hearings and proceedings, and find out what they need as they... Um, you know, they remain out of detention, but also complying with, with their immigration requirements, including attending proceedings. Um, there's, there's bond or the use of parole, which we've discussed already. And there are also things like, an inf like informal check-ins, whether by phone or, or, um, or in person. So there's a number of different approaches to alternatives. They've proven to be highly effective in ensuring immigration court attendance. Uh, many programs exceed 90% success rates. Um, so you don't need to necessarily detain somebody to get them to their proceedings. Uh, the case management model in particular ha has seen, you know, 95% and higher success. Uh, if people have the information they need to um, get to their immigration proceedings and have their day in court, uh, more often than not, they're going to take advantage of that. And they're going to say, I'm going to present my case to an immigration judge and, and hope to persuade them that, I, that I'm able to get relief here. Uh, so they have been very successful. Congress has prioritized alternatives in recent years by fiscal year 2018, they had opened 80,000 uh, ATD slots um, at a cost of $187 million. so it's much cheaper than holding someone in detention. I will say one of the issues with alternatives to detention is uh, while they were originally envisioned as, as something which could replace or crowd out um, detention, you know, you'd move people from immigration detention to an alternative uh, and, and experience significant cost savings in doing so, it hasn't played out that way. Alternatives to detention have largely supplemented existing detention levels. So as I mentioned, in 2018, we were, we were approaching uh, you know, 50,000 people in immigration detention each day, um, which was a record level. At the same time, we had a record level of alternatives to detention. So they haven't actually necessarily been used as an alternative, which um, is a missed opportunity, really. 
Well, Larry, thank you so much for taking time to share with us about this big piece of immigration. And for those that are interested, I know the National Immigration Forum has some very helpful fact sheets specifically about this topic of detention and many others. Can you share with us where people can find these fact sheets and potentially learn more about you or the National Immigration Forum? Sure. Our website is immigrationforum.org. And if you check out our uh, policy tab, we have all sorts of different fact sheets and resources that are available on immigration detention and other immigration issues. And definitely invite you all to check us out. Thank you again, Larry. Thanks so much. Great being on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Immigration. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing with family or friends and leaving a rating or review so more people can learn about this important issue. Have a great week, everyone, and let's keep talking immigration. Immigration.